Well, hello and welcome back to episode four of the Changa Institute podcast. I'm really excited today because we have a unique guest on for today's recording, Dr. Richard Miller. And if you haven't heard of him, you probably ought to have because he has produced two of the most influential books in the psychedelic space and has over 60 years of experience in this sector. So without further ado, let's go. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode four of the Changa Institute podcast with me, James Bunn. So I come to you today for a very special episode and one that I've been really excited to record. We're joined today by Dr. Richard Miller. And before I give any sort of introduction to who he is, I think it's probably best to hear it from himself, because this is a unique episode in the fact that Richard actually hasn't been a student of the Changa Institute, but has been really instrumental in helping to set it up. So Richard, I'm gonna pass over to you for a second. Could you please introduce yourself to our audience and yeah, let them know a little bit about you. Well, let's see. Well, I was uh, born in New York City. I very quickly moved to the swamps of Florida where my father was stationed as a, at a secret Air Force proving ground for jet propulsion where he was an interrogator and called Eglin Air Force Base. And then after World War II, we came from the jungles, from the uh, swamps of Florida, rather, to the jungles of Manhattan. And so I grew up from about six, seven on in Manhattan, and it was quite an experience, a rather dangerous place for a young person who came out of living in paradise, you know, in a swamp. So I went to Stuyvesant High School, which uh, is a uh, an esteemed high school based on Jefferson's belief in embers in the ashes. Jefferson wanted to make a grid of the colonies and find the brightest people in each of the little grids and make sure no matter how much or little money they made, they would get advanced education. And he thought that would be a great contribution to the country. After that, I went on. I was in college for 11 years. I got a BA in, uh, in philosophy and psychology. I minored in zoology and chemistry. I then went on and got a master's in child clinical psychology. Then I got a PhD in adult clinical psychology. Then I taught at the University of Michigan for a couple of years. It was a uh, difficult experience. I was uh, a lone existentialist in a, a department full of psychoanalytic uh, psychologists, and I didn't have anyone to talk to. But finally, I found some of the social psychologists who were doing a variation of group therapy called T-groups, and I got excited, and I was having a good time. But then an event happened that changed the course of my entire life. I went to an American Psychological Association conference in Washington, D.C., and I was in the audience to hear a group of therapists, older therapists, senior citizens, uh, give talks. One of them was the great Albert Ellis, the founder of cognitive behavioral therapy. And then there were three others sitting there. And in those days, all the psychologists at conferences wore tweed suits and ties, and some had beards and smoked uh, pipes, but not cigars like Freud, but pipes during his pipe era. 
And so I look up on the podium and there are four men sitting there and one of them is wearing a jumpsuit like the kind the guys in the car wash wear. And it really looked interesting. And he had a long white beard and long white hair. And Albert Ellis started talking, the very famous Albert Ellis, published over 300 articles, I don't know, 30, 40 books. And he started talking, and the man in the jumpsuit all of a sudden started doing this. And Albert Ellis got distracted, and he turned to him and he said, Fritz, what are you doing with this yada, yada, yada? He said, Albert, you're putting the audience to sleep. You're just talking hypnotically. You just sound so boring. You've got to put some kind of flavor in your talk. Well, I'd never heard anything like that before in my life at a professional conference or any kind of conference or anywhere, somebody doing that out in public. So when there was a break, I followed the old man into the men's room, and uh, we're both peeing, and I ask him where he's from. And he speaks with a thick German accent, and he tells me, Echelon, Echelon in California. I don't know. I finally figured out it's Esalen in California. This is 1966. So I'm teaching at Michigan, and I get a Christmas break. I get on a plane, fly to California, and I spell, find the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, and I take two weeks of uh, seminars with Fritz Perls, and my whole worldview changes in terms of therapy. I see a whole nother way to do therapy, to add to the skills that I already have. It's like somebody just, I don't know how to put it, somebody, you're working with hand tools and somebody introduces you to motor-driven tools, right? It just changes your life. Okay, so based on that, I decided I'm going to come out and study with this guy. So when my teaching year ended in Michigan the following April. I had four months off because we were on the trimester system, four, four, and four. So I get in a car and I go and I move to Esalen. And I was the first uh, resident scholar there. I met the uh, Mike Murphy and Dick Price and they gave me a place to live and I started attending seminars. However, something else happened during that period. And that is I was teaching at Michigan, and Michigan has a lot of back and forth in the psychology departments with Harvard. So we knew about what was going on with Leary and Alpert, and then at a certain point, it made the papers, of course, right? So I get a hold of their book, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I find in the back of the book that if you eat a certain number of morning glory seeds, it'll be an LSD experience. So I go out and I buy all the heavenly blue and pearly gates, morning glory seeds I can get. And my friend and I, another uh, two ladies sat as guides, we each ingested 400 morning glory seeds. Oh, wow. And just for context, what year is this taking place, roughly? The late <laughs> 60s, 1960s. The late 60s. Yeah, yeah, well, 65, 66. And what happened? And what happens is my view of the world is ch changes dramatically. I come to the realization that I'm not living on the planet, that I'm part of the planet, that it's one big organism, a living, breathing organism. I get a sense deeper than I, by far, that I've ever had that 
All human beings are connected. I saw a picture of the connection. It was like a hairnet of electricity connecting all people on the planet. That vision fit in with my already strong existential philosophy. And part of the existential philosophy is we're all responsible for ourselves and for each other, for the world. I'm glad you brought up the existentialism again, by the way, because I think that this is an important point just to to stress to the audience about what existentialism is in in a very brief sense, but more so, how do the principles of existentialism lend themselves to that psychedelic experience that you you had? Do you think that it kind of built upon what you already believed or shattered some of those beliefs? How do the two things combine? And that's a great question. It brought an intellectual belief system, namely my existential philosophy that I sort of signed on for for life when I was a 17-year-old sophomore at uh, in college and started reading Camus. And, and so, because it spoke to me as a philosophy, and I was a philosophy major, and so I, I tried on a lot of philosophies, and it really spoke to me. And the LSD experience gave me a cellular understanding of what I hitheretofore had as a cognitive understanding. So it, it deepened. I had what you might call an existential experience that was profound. Mm, okay. Right. And while we're talking about it, you know, the, the, one of the basic tenets of my personal existentialism, because I think each of us develops our own, if we're existentialists, our own sort of version of it in some ways, but we hold certain things in common. And the most important one to me is that I'm aware that you and I are spending our entire lives together. See, you could look at it and say, well, you're spending a half hour or an hour together. No, but we're not spending a half hour or an hour together. We, at this very second I'm saying this, are spending our entire lives together. You and I are the closest to each other than we are to any other human being or animal on this earth, right? It's undeniable. Yeah, totally. You're speaking to the right person here in terms of existential views because I'm fully on board. So yeah, just keen to see how that interacted. I know that you had Peter, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong, Peter Solstead Hughes. Is that the yeah. philosopher? Yeah, you had him on your show recently, which I yeah really enjoyed that that episode. And I'm always curious of how philosophy and the psychedelic experience can intertwine. Well, that's, that's why I'm putting it this way, James. This way meaning the connection between the intellectual, even a deep intellectual understanding and an experiential understanding. And you put them both together and then you have the Jeffersonian heart and the head, you know, combined, you have the, you know, the whole package. That's what I mean by it. And I appreciate that we're, we're sitting in the same canoe on existentialism, perhaps good for the audience to hear, you know, some of the, some of the basic tenets Another basic tenant is that since this is our entire lives, James Bunn, Richard Miller are spending their lives together, there's no past and there's no future. This is the only is. So we could say there's a past in terms of memory. Yes, the memory can exist, but nothing else. 
It's gone. There's no dry run. This is this is it. Yeah. And you've got to make the most of what it is. And yeah, I, I can see how that can inform, well, sorry, the psychedelic experience could inform those beliefs even, even more so. Yeah. So a lot of wonderful things happened to me with that LSD experience, which now, what, 50, 60 years later, I've written. Yes. I have three books out on, on psychedelics and two more on psychedelics coming out. That was the next thing I was going to ask you. I mean, you did that in the late 60s, and then we fast forward 50 to 60 years later, and, and you start writing books on it. So there's a, there's a big gap in between of that first experience, or the, the one that sort of maybe opened your eyes in a sense, or you experienced a new sense of, of self, to let's get this codified in writing and let's get a book out there. So yeah, can you talk a little bit about both psychedelic medicine and psychedelic wisdom? I will talk about them, but first I want to fill in a few of the dots of what you just said, because I appreciated the way you put it. The 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s were the times of the drug wars. But so those were the times we were politically active, but I wasn't one who did underground psychedelic therapy and went into that. It wasn't a battle I wanted to fight in terms of going to jail and I, in terms of risking my license. And I know some people have criticized me for that, thinking I wasn't courageous enough, but I don't particularly see it that way. I would go to jail for certain things in this country, but not fighting the fight of getting you know, in trouble for giving a patient a psychedelic medicine. That wasn't a battle I wanted to fight. So in fact, I went in a different direction I created a chemical dependence treatment program called Cokeenders Alcohol and Drug Program, and it became an internationally known program because I was the first one, I believe, or certainly amongst the first, I think maybe the first, to bring many modalities of treatment into, tr into chemical dependence that were, weren't there before, such as I brought in yoga, but I called it stretching because drug chemically dependent people don't want to do yoga. That sounds like something you do in the Himalayas in a loincloth to them. But stretching, I taught them about nutrition and I called it fuel, learning your fuel. I taught them aerobics and I called it exercise. I taught them meditation and I called it mind clearing. I love what you're doing here, Richard, by the way, the, the rebranding of these very important tenets of, of basically getting better, but in a way that people can think, okay, this is, is something that I grew up with. I mean, I personally come from a background of, I'd say like mild toxic masculinity in terms of my social circles and things like that from where I'm from. And I think if you did approach that group who, you know, some of which have issues around cocaine dependency and high cocaine use, it would they would look at words like yoga and nutrition and go, ah, not interested. You know, there's nothing there that I, you can get me on board with. But if you start to re, reword these things as yeah, fuel and stretching and working it in, in the language in which they understand, they're far more likely to get on board in the first place and therefore their rates of success are going to be better because they're not going to drop out because they think that, oh, this is some new age, you know, hippie stuff that I'm not into when actually obviously as a core of being human it's it's working with your body listening to your body so i really like what you've done there in terms of the, the rebranding in a sense thank you very much really it's about 
considering yourself at times not a clinical psychologist, but an anthropologist and a sociologist. And if you're studying a tribe, we might call this the tribe of the chemically dependent, then you want to learn their language. You can't expect them to learn English or to learn psychologies, right? You learn their language so you can communicate with them. And so they can understand mind clearing without any baggage that would come with the word meditation. That's the word I was looking for, baggage. That's, that's kind of the, yeah, the term I think that I was... Right, words come with baggage. Mm-hmm. And I tried other modalities as well to create as big a package as possible, but including getting into their vocations, their families. So that's what I did with my interest in, you might say, drugs and medicine. Instead of staying with the psychedelics, I moved into drug treatment. It was supposedly you know, so difficult. And I, I created a program where after two years, we had the highest success rate in the United States. We had a remarkable, it was an unbelievable, a really unbelievable success rate, 86% clean after two years. I do want to talk to you briefly about this whilst we're on the topic. So we're going to talk a little bit about the, the coke enders and the cessation of, of cocaine addiction in a sense or, or continual cocaine use. Now, I'm conscious of the world that I come from is the world of clinical trials. You know, you, you take a drug, you see whether it works within a clinical setting. But I'm trying to think about how your work would ever be replicated within a clinical setting because there's so many different variables here that you're using to change that person's lifestyle, you know, their, their nutrition, the amount that they're getting out, their, the way that they're talking about things. So there's also a therapeutic aspect too. So there's, I'm conscious of the fact that there's loads of things you're changing about them. And is there any particular one thing in there that you think is having a, a huge impact or is it a collection of all of the various parts of their life they're changing all at once? Well, that's a good question. The clinical applications of what I was doing. So what happened over after my doing this for 10 years, Along comes the biggest chemical dependence provider in the United States, and we make a deal. I'm going to work for them and put my program into their 124 units with 2,000 employees grossing $500 million a year. And so I was able to do things like have little cards made up so that when patients in the chemical dependence wing of the hospital ate food, the little card said carbohydrate, protein, calories, and fat, so that they knew what they were eating, so that we were teaching them while they were eating. And we had literally had a hot tub put in a unit in Southern California, which is what I used in my co-chemist program. I used the hot mineral water at Wilbur Hot Springs for detoxification and never gave 1,500 people one pill to take them down. We're talking cocaine, heroin, alcohol. And so we built a hot tub. You're asking about the application. The hot tub was right on the wing. Meditation was called mind clearing. And we pushed this philosophy of a holistic, in the best sense of the word, treatment across the country. How much of it stuck? I cannot tell you at this time, but I do, I do know that from when I did that, starting in 1980, before we went with the big company, 10 years, 1990, from that time until now, 
yoga has taken over the United States and the world. Whereas before, you, you couldn't go into a regular town and expect a yoga class, maybe a big city. And now, proliferation, right? It's part of the culture. We believe in stretching. One example, meditation, much more popular now than it was by far. And many of these, so what I'm saying is many of these modalities have caught on not just for treatment, but for keeping a balanced life. Definitely. You were well ahead of the curve in terms of these sorts of things, because everything you mentioned, yeah, the, the mindfulness, meditation, yoga, nutrition, all of this has become really important within the zeitgeist over the last 10, 15 years, but, you know, gradually improving over time. And then I guess one point that we slightly did get derailed from is talking a little bit about your, you know, you, you set up Wilbur Hot Springs, and this is something you've been doing. There's the Coke Enders and the work that you did there. And then I guess... In more recent years, there's been this work that you've been publishing books around psychedelics. So can we, where did we go from there? Like, how did you go from the Wilbur's Hot Springs to writing books about psychedelics? That's kind of a quite a big jump itself. <laughs> well, thanks for coming back to that. And I apologize for making you have to come back and ask the same question twice about the books. <laughs> I've always said to myself that I'm going to have to get very old before I start writing books because... I've loved life, and I'm so grateful for the gift of life. And I have felt that way so long that I knew I'd have to get old so that I would want to stay indoors when I'm not working at other things like seeing patients and administering and so on, consulting. Then I'd be willing to sit indoors and write. So I finally got to the stage. I was uh, 77 or 78, when I first published Psychedelic Medicine, which is doing extremely well, still selling six years later, and should be. Because in, in Psychedelic Medicine, I interview the foremost scientists in psychedelic medicine in the world who are courageous enough during the drug wars to keep knocking on the door of the government and getting little bits of permission to do a little research, right? So in, in the book are such people as Roland Griffiths and Stan Groff and Rick Doblin, Amanda Fielding, and so on. So that was my first one. And then I thought, well, I'm old. Let me see. Well, chronologically, that is. Uh, spiritually and uh, energetically, I don't have an age. But my transporter, which people call a, a body, I call it a transporter because it transports me around, takes me places. My transporter is showing signs of wear and tear. So <laughs> I decided I'm going to interview prominent elders who have been doing psychedelics underground for 30, 40, or 50 years and ask them to out themselves. So mm, that was coming out, coming out with the truth. Yeah. Because what the hell at this age, you're not going to get pride, you're going to get prosecuted for what you did then. Forget it. So that's what I did, and that's and it's called uh, psychedelic wisdom. Yes, and it's in a way, it's it's quite sad that it needs to go on that amount of time until someone can actively speak about their own consciousness expansion through potential use of psychedelic compounds. So, so that part is obviously very sad. But the really good part about this is you've got this catalog of some of the people that have been involved in this, even when it was in the underground. And I think those findings and those teachings are things that we can start to implement 
as this starts to roll out, and I guess we're going to get onto this in a second with Oregon and other potential states as well, but there's now this second wave coming along, let's say. So there's the psychedelic elders that put this forward and really moved it forward during the drug war. And now things are starting to relax in terms of regulations and legalizations in some very specific places. I guess there are lessons to be learned. These are the sorts of books where the next generation of facilitators will be able to learn from these, yeah, learn from these teachings that people have cultivated over decades of trying to implement this as a potential therapeutic application. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, I guess there's been this, yeah, 50 years of, you know, over 50 years, 60 years of prohibition, let's say almost. And I guess now things are starting to move relatively quickly. So we're starting to see things in, in Oregon, which is where a lot of our listeners will be listening from today as part of the Changer Institute podcast. And there's now Colorado moving forward and California and potentially Washington. So I guess my question to you is around why is it in, is it the Pacific Northwest or the, you know, this area of the US that's really cottoned on to this as a potential area of self-improvement or yeah, why there? About 50 years ago, Ernest Kallenbach wrote a book called Ecotopia. And in Ecotopia, the people of Washington, Oregon, and the north of California seceded from the Union. And the way they were able to do it is they had enough technology skills that they wired Washington, D.C., and they wired it in such a way that nobody could ever find the wires and be able to hack in the book. And then they write a letter to Washington saying, we secede and you're going to let us because otherwise you're finished. And Washington allows them. So the book is about what it's like living in Ecotopia. Here's an example of what's it like living in Ecotopia. It's in, this is in the book, in Ernest Collingbach's book. You go into a restaurant for a date, the two of you. The service is very slow, and the first food comes, and it doesn't taste so good. So you know that means that they're having problems in the kitchen. So you get up, and you walk into the kitchen, and you say, hey, we can see that you're having trouble, and we know a lot about cooking. Tell us what we can do to help. That's the kind of thing that goes on in Ecotopia. Okay, okay. I think I'm starting to put these together. So there was a, a defined problem in this area of the country. Well, I mean, it's around everywhere, but there was more of a, I guess the right thing is a can-do attitude to solving that problem. Let's come up with reasonable solutions. Is that sort of where you're getting at here? I'm going at people with, with yachts tend to hang out with people with yachts. People with certain kinds of cars hang out with people with certain kinds of cars. People who like to bowl, they're going to have a number of friends who like to bowl. The tribalism, yeah. There is a certain tribalism that has attracted us to Northern California, Oregon, and possibly parts of Washington. It's definitely true in my case. I had the best job that I thought I could ever get in my life teaching at the University of Michigan. Everybody, everyone, every classmate, everybody wanted that job. Really, it was amazing. I was just absolutely thrilled out of my mind. I get off the plane Christmas vacation 
to go see Fritz Perls for that seminar I told you about. When I drove through San Francisco from the airport, it was a different world, and it was a different air that I was breathing, and I knew I wanted to be part of it. I could feel it. This felt more like my tribe. I felt like I was in a city after I went around for a while. I said, you know, this looks like a place you could put paint on your body and walk down the street naked and nobody would, you wouldn't get it. Nobody would hurt you or bother you. Like a social culture of like-minded people. And you thought, this is, this is a part of me. This is what I want to be a part of as well. It was with the possible exception of some time I spent in a small area of Greenwich Village and a, and a small area of Santa Fe, New Mexico. It was by far the most accepting of individual differences in our humanity, be it related to color, your hair, your look, whatever it was, people seemed the most willing to take each other based on face value and talking than on what you looked like or where you came from or what kind of jewelry you're wearing or what kind of car you drove. It seemed like it had... And for me, that was the tribe I wanted to be with. I wanted to be with people because I'm already, you know, 11 years a psychologist, trained as a psychologist. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm about people and helping people. And it seemed like the most number of people were more like that. And I think that's true in Oregon. You're leading the way in decriminalizing a substance that has the potential to do a lot of good for humanity. And so you can be so proud of that. Well, let's talk about Oregon for a second. And so no offense to Santa Fe or Greenville, you know, there's, there's other places. <laughs> but in Oregon, the Changa Institute, which I hope most of you have heard of, if you're listening to this podcast, has set up a training school for training future psilocybin facilitators. Now, can I get a little bit of background about how you and Lisa came to know each other? So Lisa, everyone would have heard in an earlier episode of the podcast. How did you guys meet? I will tell you that, but first I want to comment about the training institute at Changa, because Lisa told me that they you've already graduated. We've already graduated, I should say, because I'm an advisor to Changa. In all transparency, seven cohorts already, and I just want to exclaim what that means to the world that these are the first seven cohorts of people, twelve in each cohort approximately, who have been certified by their program, but also the program is authorized by the state of Oregon. So it's proper to say these are the first government-authorized trained psychedelic guides in the United States. And that is historic. We've been waiting 50 or more years for this. And wow. It's very impressive. Anyone that holds that license, I'm not one of these people. I don't, I don't think that I would be particularly good in that role. But those that are doing that are really trailblazing the way. To have that accolade included in your professional description is quite novel at the moment. Amazing. Okay, how did I meet Lisa? First of all, Lisa Ginsberg is the founder of the Changa Institute. Last uh, spring, I went to the Psychedelic Science conference in Denver, the historic conference, which drew 12,000 people from around the world. 
and, and I presented there. And I was walking through the exhibit hall and just sort of walking around, not my way to stop at any particular exhibit. I'm more like casually walking around. And suddenly, I find myself stopping to look in one exhibit. And there are people on the floor, like the spokes of a wheel, laying down, doing some form of exercise. And there are three people standing right in front of the tent that these people are laying down in. And I walked over and started talking to them, which is also, it's not unusual for me, but that's not typical. It's more likely I'm just going to keep moving. And we start talking and talking and talking, and we make a connection. And all three of the people were from the Changa Institute. And so naturally, as soon as I looked up Changa Institute and saw the kind of work you were doing, since I'm knee deep in that work myself, I thought, well, this is an interesting thing. So I think it might have been myself, and I'm not sure which of us reached out first and made the connection. And that's how we met. And we've been uh, collaborating ever since. And I, I love that that is that first connection or that first meeting that you had with them because Lisa's been doing this in the last couple of, of months for various other places around the country with conferences and she was speaking at the UN recently and it really seems like people are starting to listen and maybe the state authorization of this has really given her that yeah sense of, uh, of correctness that, that she is doing something very well. If I'm not mistaken, I think the Changa Institute students also hold the additional accolade of being the first people in Oregon to to graduate as well. So not only are they the first people within the country, they are also her students with the first cohort going through, some of which have opened up service centers since to be actually delivering this, which is amazing that it's taken even less than a year to get to that stage. So I never want... I never want perfection to be the enemy of the good or the great or whatever that correct saying is. But obviously, Oregon have set out, this is the way that we're going to be doing things. And Colorado will have their own version of this in a couple of months when their regulations get published. I guess from your perspective, Richard, is there anything that you think could be done better? Again, I really don't want to criticize something that is so revolutionary because it is fantastic. But there are always room for improvement. Is there anything in the Oregon system you would like to see done differently? I'm not going to second guess Lisa Ginsburg in setting up this training program because she's a remarkable human being with a great deal of concern for humanity. And so I'm sure that she put her heart and soul into covering the bases with the training. There is one aspect of it that I could comment on in regard to your question, which is guides, psychedelic guides, are specialists. And as specialists, they're specializing often without having certain other training. So for example, if a medical doctor wants to specialize in something, after they get their medical degree, they can take a specialty but they have the foundation. If I, as a doctor of clinical psychology, want additional specialty, I can take postgraduate classes and residencies in that specialty. But I come for, to that specialty with the foundation of having my doctorate already, 
We're doing a reverse with the psychedelic guides. We're giving them the specialty training, but not counting on the foundational training because we believe that what they bring to the table and what they're going to learn in this in the classes will give them what they need. Now, in order to make that effective so that the public feels safe, I think the insurance policy is going to be the vetting the vetting tactics that the guides use. If the vetting tactics are excellent, they will not accept those people who, if they want psychedelic experiences, best go to somebody who has both the specialty training and the other training, such as clinical psychology or psychiatry as well, because those are the people who are the most likely to have some event that is out at the wings of the bell curve rather than what most people go through, which is any guide that's trained will be able to handle it and take care of it beautifully, and it'll be all good. So it's that vetting. And what I'm hoping, and I'm so glad you asked this question, James, what I would like to see is a national vetting standard so that psychedelic guides across the whole United States no matter what vetting they want to add to on their own or what vetting they want to do because of the state or the county or the city they live in, they will always use the foundational document as part of yep. their, vet, their vetting that the whole country agrees on. Totally. Yeah, again, that sort of unification is always going to be difficult, but definitely a challenge we need to address in the next couple of years is more. Yeah, yeah. and it's really a matter of establishing a commission yeah. and having the commission create a vetting document. That's it, right? You put five or 10 knowledgeable, wise people together, they'll know what to do. Definitely. And th there are lots of people that we know personally who would be amazing for that committee. And I really hope they take in the views of people that are actively involved in this space right now, because they're the ones seeing patients come in and out. They're seeing how this drug can work and, and benefit people's lives. So really appreciate all your insights there, Richard. And I'm also conscious that we're, we are running a little bit close to the end now, but I've got kind of one last question I'd like to run past you before we, we wrap up for today, if that's okay. So I was born in, uh, showing my age here, I, I was born in a time obviously where my whole life has always been pro prohibition in this area. Uh, it's only in the last couple of years I've started to see the wheels of, t of change take motion. Now, obviously, you've been working in this for a lot longer than, than I have, and you've seen this progression of change go into one direction. So sorry, this is a bit of a wind-up question, but you've seen that progression of change. And as you see that progression expand over the next couple of years, do you have any looking into your crystal ball predictions about where this space is going towards? And perhaps that could be fears about where the space is going or optimism, I guess, yeah, because you've got a longer time span to actually be an effective judge of where this is moving towards. So I'd love to hear your thoughts finally on that. I think on the macrocosm, there are two forces con in conflict on the planet. There's the force that we call social Darwinists, and they believe that the 
strongest are meant to lead and the others are meant to follow. And that's how it is. And they connect with survival of the fittest to the survival of the richest and the most powerful. And if you're not in that group, you die. And that's okay with them. And if you're sick, so you die, so what? That's the social, the social Darwinists. The social humanists, myself included, we believe we're all in this together. We're all part of humanity. And let's do the best we can to rise everybody up. And if that means some people at the top, instead of being on the pinnacle, have to be at a plateau a few hundred feet down, that's okay, i.e. tax the heck out of them, right? Because a person doesn't need $50 billion. (laughs) You know, it would not be a terrible insult to cut that person down to $1 billion and spend the other 49 on that person's sisters and brothers around the world. So, The two forces are fighting for control of the planet. And the social Darwinists, they would like control of the planet, and they would turn it into basically an extended slave ship, where where the slaves are living off the plantation in their own little homes, whatever they are, and then the rest are living off them with, with slaves taking care of them. And the others are fighting for something closer to what we have in the Scandinavian countries where people are taken care of from cradle to grave and they don't live in fear. They don't live in fear of being out on the street. I think not living in fear is a goal that we can all really strive towards and and a a society we want to live in. I've, I've visited some of those countries in the past that you mentioned, the Scandinavian ones, and it's a different lifestyle from what I'm used to in the UK, and I'm sure what you're used to as well. And that's, yeah, I mean, it's kind of ending, this is ending on a very positive note, which I'm super glad for. And I guess, is there anything else you want to say to, to the people out there that are listening that are wanting to become future guides or future facilitators? Yes, there is. There's a lot more I want to say. <laughs> the thing I want to say most is that if you're listening to this and you're in your 20s, to mid-40s, it's time to get to work. You've got 20 years to change the country and change the world, and you can do it in 20 years. Remember that less than 60 people signed the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and they overthrew the strongest army and navy in the world, and they overthrew the king who ruled by divine providence, which means He had the backing of the church, and if you objected or did something against the king, you had your head chopped off, and the church condoned it. And we revolted against both those systems and formed a democracy and a republic. And if they could do it, we can do it, and we can really get our democracy and our republic back because we're really not living in it anymore. You see, when the politicians managed to get corporations listed as people in Citizens United. And when the politicians made lobbying legal instead of seen as what it is, bribery, that was the end of the democracy and the republic as we all know it and want it to be. Because it meant 
that endless amounts of money could be spent on politicking and bribing and buying and buying the government. Ask yourself, if you were in a position of Congress and they came to you, what price would it take on a vote? 10 million? 20 million? How about when they ask you to take 50 million? How about 100 million? Would that get you thinking? Well, it's a sad thing, but it's true that for so many of us, it doesn't have to be all of us. We can be had for a price. So all they have to do is get to that number of congressmen and senators who can be had for a price, and then you're buying government. And we've got to look at the world as it is, friends. And you young ones, you have the time. The world as it is, is that a cartel member can get to the president of Mexico and say to him, either you take 100 million or we're going to kill you and your family and your grandparents and everybody you ever know, and we mean it, and walk away. They call it pluma y plata, lead or gold or silver. And how many can walk away from that? So I'm saying we need a new form of government with new rules that you people make up that fit your generations. Thank you for giving me the time to say that. No, it's a, it's a poignant point to end on. And yeah, it really is quite inspiring because in a sense, sometimes it is demoralizing to think this is the only option we have, this this style of government we got or the, the way that we're being ruled is that's, that's it. And it's nice to know that there is potentially another way out there. So thank you for all of your time today, Richard. We really genuinely appreciated it. And I do like the idea of essentially getting you back on the show in a, a you know, when we've got a little bit bigger uh, to hear more insights from yourself. But again, thanks for appearing on the China Institute podcast. If you are interested in becoming a psilocybin facilitator yourself, then please check out the website at www.changerinstitute.com.